Hey, good morning, everybody. Thanks for joining me in my house this morning. I uh, appreciate you tuning in. And uh, if you, I don't know you, my name is Dan Halleck. I'm the lead pastor at Cedar Home Baptist Church. Wherever you are this morning, I just uh, thank you for being here. And our church leaders, we've been praying for you this week. We're, uh, we're thinking about you. We're thinking about how best we can shepherd our church and, and care for our community at this time. And we know that you are too. And I just want to encourage you, whatever your circumstances are today, um, we're just praying that you would keep your eyes on Jesus and that the Holy Spirit would just graciously give you the peace of God that transcends all understanding. You know, there's an old saying that some people are so heavenly minded that they are no earthly good. Have you ever heard that saying? Uh, I don't know who first said that, but it's not intended to be a compliment to many people who do believe in heaven and who do believe in a spiritual world. In some cases, though, there, there, there might be some truth behind those words. For instance, if a church has all the right doctrine and it has great preaching and great music and lots of ministries, but it does not have a culture of love. A culture of love that is displayed practically between its members and also to the non-believing world. If it doesn't have love, then it really is off the mark. 1 Corinthians 13, 1-3 says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Now that being said, a, a person might very likely uh, be thinking wrongly by saying that some people are so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good, right? That's very possible too. If, a, if the person saying that spends the majority of his or her time only thinking about life on earth, how to indulge in everything this world offers, and how to preserve his, his or her life on earth at all costs, then he or she would be the one missing the mark. Like Chris Meyer said in our live stream on Thursday, we must remember that our lives on earth are a very short and very temporary part of our existence. Death will come to all of us eventually, one way or another. That is reality. But if we put our faith in Jesus who conquered death in his own death, then we don't need to be afraid of dying. You see, for Christians, our earthly deaths will be the beginning of our lives in glory with God. And that's exciting, right? In actuality, the way that we can be most helpful to the people around us is by living with heaven in mind, by thinking about heaven in the spiritual blessings we have in Christ a lot. And that's why the psalmist in Psalm 90 asks God to help us to rightly number our days, Lord, so that we might then live wisely on earth for the glory of God and for our own joy and for the joy of our neighbors. In his classic book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis wrote, 
A continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven and you will get earth. Aim at earth and you will get neither. <laughs> and C.S. Lewis's thoughts here are, they're in agreement with scripture. In his letter to the Christians in Ephesus, Paul prays passionately that Christians would spend much more time thinking about the spiritual blessings we have in the heavenly realms because we're in Jesus Christ now. And in Ephesians 1, 3 to 14, we have seen how Paul described many of those spiritual blessings. And now in Ephesians 1, 15 to 23, Paul prays that we will keep our eyes on Jesus and on the blessings of Jesus so that we might have joy and peace right now, whatever our circumstances are. This is what God wants for us. That's great news. So if you have a Bible with you, Please open with me to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version this morning. And before we read today's passage, let's ask the Lord to continue to help us. Dear Lord, we thank you for uh, this opportunity to gather online together as a church family. We thank you for your word, which never changes, even when our circumstances do. We thank you for you and your love, which never changes, even though our circumstances do. And we just ask that your Holy Spirit would illuminate the word for us. Teach our hearts, God. Show us your glory in your word and show us the glory of you, God. And may that delight our hearts and may that bring glory to you today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'll read Ephesians 1, 15 through 23, because that's the one passage we're looking at. It's all one long verse in the Greek, and so it's kind of all connected. Paul writes, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. 
And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Amen. Last week, we ended with verses 16 to 17, where Paul prays that God the Father would give to the Ephesian Christians the Holy Spirit's wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God. In other words, Paul is praying, Lord, please, Lord, move powerfully in the hearts of Christians. Lord, blow them away by the massiveness of your love for them. Lord, please give them eyes to see how much you love them. Lord, blow these Christians away by showing them your glory and your power in the gospel. This is what Paul is praying. Lord, show these Christians your holiness and your sovereignty and your goodness in the gospel. And in verse 18, Paul prays that the Holy Spirit would enlighten or illuminate the eyes of our hearts so that we can see and believe and celebrate the blessings that we have right now in Christ. And now in verses 18 to 23, Paul prays that the Holy Spirit would powerfully reveal to Christians three specific blessings in Christ, three specific realities in Christ. First, Paul prays that we would know what is the hope to which God has called us. Second, Paul prays that we would know what are the riches of God's glorious inheritance in the saints. Third, Paul prays that we would know what is the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe. So today we're going to talk about the first two blessings mentioned here, and next week we'll look at the third blessing. So let's start with the first one. First, Paul prays that we would know what is the hope to which God has called us. What is the hope to which God has called us? Let's just begin by talking about what hope is. You know, most of us use the word hope to express our desire to see something good happen in the future, right? We, we're not certain that good things will happen, but we hope that they will happen. And so we say things like, uh, you know, I hope that they drive safely or, uh, hey, I hope you have a good day. And... And so we often use the word hope to be optimistic about the future, but uncertain about the future. But the New Testament usage of the word hope is really different than that. Biblical hope is more than a desire to see something good happen in the future. Biblical hope is the confident and joyful expectation that God will do everything he's promised to do. You see that difference? Biblical hope is, is not wondering if God will keep his promises. Biblical hope is knowing through faith that God will keep his promises. That's why Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And so hope means that we joyfully anticipate the future fulfillment of God's past promises. See that? Hope is, is, is this joyful anticipation of seeing how God is going to fulfill in the future the promises that he has made already in the past. 
And the specific hope that Paul is describing in today's passage is our future life with God in glory forever. And that life uh, that we will have with Christ after this life will be a life that is never again touched by sin or by sickness or by death or by Satan. And so for the Christian, we do not dream that this is going to happen someday. We know this is going to happen. And we can't wait for this to happen. We can't wait for this day when this is our reality. It doesn't mean that, uh, that we have to wait until then to, to ha experience some of this because of the Holy Spirit in us. Uh, because Jesus offers his friendship with us uh, right now, um, we can have hope and life right now in Jesus. And so uh, it, it also does not mean that, that, that we won't be anxious you know, about suffering and about death and about leaving our loved ones on earth. But it does mean that we know that once we cross over into the next life, the, the awesome, everlasting glory and power and friendship of the Lord is waiting for us. And that is exciting. That is, that is hopeful. Well, you might ask, what gives Christians the right to be so confident about this? What gives them so much confidence that this future glory is their destiny? Well, look at the rest of the verse here. Look at the rest of the phrase in verse 18. It says, That you may know what is the hope to which he, God, has called you. So Christian... Your confident anticipation of future glory is not grounded upon the fact that you want it to happen. It doesn't matter how bad you want something to happen. If it's not going to happen, it's not going to happen. Instead, your confident anticipation of future glory is grounded upon the fact that God has already called you to glory. See that? And, and God doesn't he hasn't called you in the sense that he's praying that you will see on your own how wonderful he is and that you will let him into your heart and let him be your God. No, God has called you, Christian, by predestinating you for future glory before the foundation of the world. That's what, that's what it says in Ephesians 1, 3 to 5, right? Let's look at that again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy, holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Praise God. And this is what Jesus said too in, in uh, his earthly ministry. In, in John 6, 44, Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. So therefore, if, if you believe that Jesus is God, and if you are trusting in him for eternal salvation, eternal life, then the reason you're trusting in the Lord and the reason you believe he is God 
is because God the Father has already powerfully drawn you to himself to believe. You see that? And, and the reason that he's powerfully drawn you to himself to believe is because he predestined you to know him and to know him now and to know him in future glory. So we praise God for that, right? Philippians 2.13 says, It is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. It's God who works in you. So it's not your will that makes eternal life with Jesus Christ a reality. It's not because of your power that you can work for God's glory. It is God who works in you both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. This is according to his good pleasure. It is God's good pleasure to save his church and to give them hope. Isn't that awesome? Thank you, Lord. And let's just remember how God has already done this according to Ephesians 1. How has God already acted to save us according to this, to what we've read so far? Well, it says that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. In love, God predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. God has redeemed us. Through the blood of Jesus, God has ransomed us from the curse of sin. He has legally purchased us with his own blood. He has removed our sins from us now and forever. It says that God has made peace with us through Christ. He's brought us near to himself in Christ. And the moment that we heard the good news of Jesus and trusted in it, it says that God sealed us with his own Holy Spirit to guarantee us of our future glory until we obtain it after this life. So it is all these things that God has already done for us that give us hope for the future. So think about this too. Jesus is called the living hope. He is our living hope. He is our living hope because Jesus is risen from the dead. Jesus reigns in power right now. Jesus, his, his very life is the proof that all of these blessings and promises are true for his people. That's why we look, we're so thankful for his resurrection and why we, we are excited to celebrate this Easter season as we think about Jesus' resurrection and his exaltation at the right hand of the Father and what that means for us who are united to him. Thank you, Lord. In today's passage, Paul is praying that the Holy Spirit would help us every day to remember our hope in Christ. He's praying that we would be filled with joy as the Spirit blows us away with his supernatural hope. See, God doesn't want his people to be people of despair. Yes, life has all sorts of trials and hard things and terrible things sometimes that we have to go through. But even in the midst of that, God says, you don't need to grieve as those who have no hope. Because you're a people of hope. God has given us great hope. And through our faith, God has united us to our living hope. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And Christ alone is our hope. Paul's prayer for us is that we would not hope in anything else to save us or to satisfy us. 
You know, uh, uh, while a, a better economy would be nice, a better economy cannot truly satisfy our souls or save us. You know, even though we pray for a world without the coronavirus, a world without the coronavirus cannot truly satisfy us or save us. Our drugs and alcohol and sex and social media, our jobs, our marriages and families and hobbies and vacations and bank accounts cannot truly satisfy us or save us. Only Jesus can. And so we praise God that we can have the Lord right now. We don't have to wait for forever. We, we know we, we have hope coming in the future, but we also have the living hope right now that we can know personally the person of Jesus Christ who sends the Holy Spirit to indwell us, the living hope Jesus Christ who intercedes for us now and forever. What a hope we have in Jesus Christ. Hope in Jesus has a very direct bearing on how we choose to live our lives as followers of Jesus. Because when we truly believe that a future glory is coming that will eclipse every earthly pleasure that we've ever had, a future glory that will eclipse every earthly pleasure we could ever dream of, when we believe that, then we are willing to give up everything we have right now and use it all for God's glory. Eternal hope tells us that our lives on earth are very short. And as a result, we want to use the time we have here. We want to use the, the talents God's given us. We want to use the treasures that God has made us stewards of to love one another the way that the Bible tells us to. And not according to worldly wisdom. Because those two ideas, worldly wisdom and the wisdom of God, will tell you, use your time, resources, energy, your treasures, and your talents in two different ways. They're at odds with one another. And so as followers of Jesus, we have to ask, who am I going to follow? Well, when we believe in hope, and when we believe in the living hope of Christ, God changes our hearts so that it's, it's not a mere duty to give our lives for him as living sacrifices. It's our joy and our pleasure. We're, you know, that we get to do anything for God's glory right now is amazing. Jesus says even more than that, though. That by giving away our treasures now for his glory, we store up for ourselves treasures in heaven. Which we'll get to enjoy not for just 30 years on earth, but for eternity. And so not only is it glorifying to God, but it is truly wise to live our lives according to the wisdom of Christ right now. And so may the Holy Spirit blow you and me away today. May he, may he blow us away by the hope that we have in Christ and the hope to which God has called us. That's the first point here that Paul is praying for. Second, Paul prays that we would know what are the riches of God's glorious inheritance in his saints. What are the riches of God's glorious inheritance in his saints? And this is one of two phrases in today's passage that are tricky to translate and interpret from the original Greek. Because either Paul is praying that we would know what are the riches of the inheritance God has given us in Christ, 
Or Paul is praying that we would know what are the riches of God's inheritance in his redeemed people. And as of right now, uh, I like either interpretation, but as of this moment, I'm going with the second interpretation, that, that Paul is praying that we would know what are the riches of God's inheritance in his redeemed people. And let, let me explain to you why. Throughout the Old Testament, God refers to his people as his inheritance. Uh, and that's, that's kind of a funny thing to say, since God created everything and he already owns everything. And we normally think of an inheritance as something that you receive from a person when they die. And so, who would God be receiving an inheritance from, right? But when God refers to his people as his inheritance, he doesn't mean that someone else gave his people to him. God means that his people are his portion. His people are those whom he has set apart as holy for himself. God's inheritance is his church. And his church is the collection of those he predestined to be adopted as his sons and daughters. Those he purchased with his blood. Those who have heard the gospel and responded to it by trusting in Jesus. And this means that Paul is praying here that the Holy Spirit would enable us Christians to see the riches we have in God's glorious family. See, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, then, then you are a family member of God's rich and glorious family. Is that what you think of when you think of the church? Is that what you think of when you think of your brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, in your local church? as God's rich and glorious family? Because God wants you and me to start seeing one another the way that he sees us. Yeah, we live in an age that, that glorifies following Jesus apart from local churches. And so we must be very careful that we don't look down on local churches, that we don't look down on Christians or pastors, because according to this passage, they are God's holy inheritance. We are, as God's people, we are the bride of Christ. The bride of Christ. Wow. Now, an important question to answer is this. What makes us, as God's people, glorious? What makes us glorious? And also, what makes us, as God's people, the church, rich? Because it's not talking about financial riches, obviously, but what makes us, as God's people, rich? Well, let's look at those one at a time. What makes us glorious uh, is not us, okay? What makes us glorious is the glorious God who has saved us. What makes us glorious is the God who lives in us. And uh, what makes us glorious is, is not that we proclaim the gospel or that we help the poor or that we give uh, to our church or that we say our prayers. We are not made glorious by anything we do. Uh, rather, we are only glorious because through faith, God has hidden us in the beloved Son of God, who is glorious. Just like verse 6 says. Colossians 3, 1-4 uh, tells Christians, If then you have been raised with Christ, 
Seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Praise God. And then in Ephesians 5, Paul describes the glory of the bride of Christ when he's instructing husbands and wives how to serve one another. Ephesians 5, 25 to 27 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor or glory, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And this, this image of, of God's people, the church, as the glorious bride of Christ is, is also referenced in the last book of the Bible, Revelation 19, uh, verses 6 through 8, uh, where the Apostle John writes, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty, mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the, mar the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. You see, the reason why the bride of Christ is dressed in righteousness is because God gave us this dress of righteousness. God gave us the righteousness of Christ, and now he fills us with power to work out our righteousness by doing righteous deeds for his glory. Those kind of righteous deeds verse 8 is describing here. Now, in the context of today's passage, Paul says that the church is glorious because Christ is our head, and we as the church are his body. Ephesians 1, 22 to 23 says, And he put, and God put all things under his, Jesus' feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So we, as the church, are the fullness of Christ who fills all in all. And this is the second Greek phrase in today's passage that is difficult to interpret, but I agree with Peter O'Brien who says that the fact that Christ fills all in all does not mean that he physically fills every physical and spiritual object in existence. Rather, it means that as God, Jesus is omnipresent. He's present everywhere. And also Jesus is sovereign, which means he is in control of everything everywhere. And so Jesus Christ pervades every part of his universe with his presence and with his sovereign control. And further, that the church is Christ's body, which is the fullness of him, means that Jesus fills the church. 
And he rules the church, his people, in a special way with his indwelling spirit and with his grace and with the gifts that he's given to the church. Like many of the blessings described in Ephesians 1, the glory of Jesus' church is both already and not yet. We are already glorious because God has already hidden us in his beloved son Jesus in the heavenly realms. Praise God. And at the same time, our glory is not yet because Jesus has not yet returned to earth to give us new glorious resurrection bodies in which we will live for eternity with him in the new heavens and the new earth. But in hope, we confidently and joyfully await that future day of glory, right? We hope for that. We can't wait for it. Now, if you if you're listening today, if you're watching today, and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, if, if you never trusted in him as God, as, 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 as your Savior, then God offers to you the invitation today to be hidden inside his son Jesus through faith. God offers you this offer of Jesus, this offer to enjoy the glory of God forever in eternity. And the way to take God up on that gracious offer is, is not by getting your life together at this very moment to try to make it your life look more pleasing and more glorious to God. No, because on your own uh, and on my own, we would never able to make our lives look pleasing and glorious to God. We're too messed up. We're too sinful. So instead of that, we, 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 we just say, hey, I'm a sinner. I... I I don't deserve God's grace and mercy. I acknowledge I can't please God on my own. You know, it doesn't matter how good of a life we think we've lived, how many accomplishments we have, we can't get rid of our filth on our own. We can't erase our guilty past on our own. We need God to do that for us. So thankful he graciously offers to in Jesus. And so that's why we look to Jesus we, we believe that Jesus is the Son of God who already did everything necessary to, pre to present us to God as pleasing and as glorious in God's sight. Because by dying on the cross for sin, Jesus took our sin and he put it in his own body on the tree. And then he killed it by allowing other people to kill him. This is amazing. There's no greater love than that. That Jesus would become sin for you so that you might become the righteousness of God and be seen as pleasing and holy and blameless in the Father's sight forever. Wow. So put your trust in Jesus today. Put, him, put your trust in Jesus today. Pray to Jesus wherever you're at. Ask the Lord, Lord, forgive me. I need you. Lord, please turn the lights on me. Show me uh, for me. Show me your glory, God. I need you. I, I, I need you to save me because I'm helpless on my own. Please, Lord, save me and give me eternal life. Romans 10, 9 says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Praise God. 
And, and if you're doing that for the first time today, please, please let us know. Uh, you can message us through our Facebook page or send us an email through uh, the, the church at uh, info at cedarhome.org. Info at cedarhome.org. We would love to celebrate uh, that with you. And so the atoning work that Jesus accomplished already by dying and rising for us is what makes God's people glorious. What then um, makes God's people full of riches, right? What, what, as, as Ephesians 1.18 describes, what makes God's people rich or full of riches? Well, when Paul talks about riches in the New Testament, he talks about the riches of God's grace, the riches of God's mercy, the riches of God's glory, and the riches of God himself. And so I take Paul to mean here that as Christ's body, the church is rich in the blessings of Christ. Um, we as the church are the recipients of the riches of God's grace. And also we pray that we would be a living expression of God's truth and his grace and his mercy and his love. Paul prays that the Holy Spirit would, would blow us away by revealing to us how God pursued us and offered us grace before we were followers of Jesus when we were still a long way off from God and living our lives in sin. And so our right response to remembering that truth is, is that this is that by the power of the Spirit, we would then be rich in grace toward one another and toward non-believers who are exactly how we used to be and exactly how we would be today were it not for the kind, pursuing grace of God that turned the lights on for us. Of course, this doesn't mean that that we do not uphold all of God's commands in his word. What it, what it means is that we ask God to help us be gracious toward non-believers and toward one another. And we ask God to help non-believers see that even though they've sinned against God, he has grace for them if they trust in Jesus Christ. And it means that we pray that God would help non-believers and believers to see that every command of God is a gracious command that God gives us for our individual good and for the good of the human race, and for the glory of God's name. I want you to consider how you, as a church, as a Christian, who is rich in Christ, rich in his grace, how can you this week be a messenger of the grace of God to others? How can you be an ambassador of grace this week? Who, who can you do an act of kindness for, just as Jesus has acted kindly toward you? Who can you financially help and show mercy to this week, just as God has been more merciful toward you? Who can you pray for in our church? Who can you pray for on your street? Who do you need to be gracious to in your heart today, just as God has graciously forgiven you and shown you grace? I trust that if you ask the Holy Spirit to 
reveal to you specific ways that you can be his messengers of grace this week, that he will do that. And I encourage you to pray that he would show you how to do that. And this brings us here to Ephesians 1.19, where the third thing that Paul prays is that we would know what is the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe. And this is what I'm excited to talk about next Sunday. Um, I, I hope it has been helpful for you to explore everything we've explored so far. I wish we could get into that third component right now, but Paul talks about it at such length that it really necessitates an entire sermon devoted to it, the greatness of God's power toward us who believe. And so um, I hope this has been helpful to you uh, and to explore what Paul means that the Holy Spirit would illuminate the eyes of our hearts, that he would blow us away by the blessings of knowing God, by the blessings of, of being redeemed by Jesus's blood. And so I pray that that the Holy Spirit would, would continue to illuminate our hearts as we open his word, as we say, wow, this is amazing, God, what you have done for me in Jesus Christ. You are awesome. You are loving. You are amazing. And thank you, God, that I get to be part of your family, that you've adopted me in Jesus Christ. And let's ask the Holy Spirit to help us, to help us not just not only to, to celebrate those blessings, but as a response to then live wisely for God's glory in light of all the blessings that, ours, that are ours in Christ, in light of the future hope that we have, in light of our future hope of glory in our living hope, Jesus Christ. Um, thank you for being here. Let me close us in prayer. Lord Jesus, we, we thank you for all of this good news that's in this passage today. Thank you, Lord, um, that oh, we have hope in you. We have hope for the future. We, we confidently anticipate the future fulfillment of all of your past promises. We thank you that your record is 100% in fulfilling your promises and that all of your promises are ours who have been united to Jesus Christ. We thank you, God, for the rich the riches of the inheritance of your people, God. Help us to love your bride as individual members of it. Help us to um, do our part to sanctify uh, ourselves and to help one another be sanctified in Christ. Help us to do that with grace and love. Help us to be ambassadors and um instruments of your grace and peace and love and truth to others around us. God, we're just in a time right now where a lot of people are anxious and worried and, and for different reasons. And we just pray, Lord, for those of us who know us, that we would trust in you and keep our minds steadfast upon you and that you would give us the peace that passes all understanding in the Holy Spirit. And we pray for those who are anxious, who don't know you, God, that you would turn their eyes to you, that you would illuminate them, their hearts, God, as they hear the gospel and as they see their need for a savior, as they see their need for hope, as they see the fact that all this world cannot satisfy them and that they don't take any of it with them when they die. We just pray that, God, you would be the living hope for many, many more people and that you would use us 
to bring them into the family of God as we tell them about you. We love you, Jesus, and please guide us and protect us this week. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Thank you so much for being here this morning. We love you guys. Uh, we'll plan to continue to be in touch with you through email this week and then our Facebook page. God bless.